get the impression that there's been a disconnect, that someone doesn't really understand what they've received. Uh, on Sunday nights, uh, after we put our kids to bed, a lot of times uh, I will uh, kind of scroll through the channels and I have this uh, kind of uh, guilty pleasure, I guess, that I watch on Sunday nights. It's called My Lottery Dream Home. Uh, and uh, I usually will get sucked into this thing. And uh, if you've ever watched it before, or, or, or maybe you haven't, if you're not like me, you know, that, that, you know pray for me, but... Um, is that it's, it's exactly what it sounds like, that it's people that win the lottery, and sometimes it's one million or five million, or on one occasion, like a hundred million dollars, and they decide that with their lottery winnings that they're gonna buy a new home. And it's really interesting to watch, because a lot of times, uh, there is a disconnect, and as a person of great cheapness, I actually appreciate this disconnect. Uh, but sometimes the disconnect is they'll win, let's say, five million dollars, and uh, they'll go to the expert and say, I'm re ready to buy a home. They'll say, I'm gonna spend $100,000 on my home. And a lot of times the, the expert's kind of trying to, try, trying to persuade them to, to buy more. And I'm like, no, be cheap. You know, this, I'm like rooting for cheapness, you know, be cheap. And uh, I, I'm kind of blown away by it. But a lot of times the expert will be like, I don't think you really understand what you've been given. Right, you've won $5 million. You can afford more than a $100,000 home. I, I don't think you understand exactly what you've received. Uh, I, I've told you about this before, but several years ago, we took our son uh, to Disney World. And if you know anything about going to Disney World, uh, you know it's something that requires you to save, uh, second mortgage, borrow, beg. Uh, Disney is the happiest place on earth for Disney, right? Because money is literally falling from the heavens for them. But... Um, <laughs> So we took our Sam to Disney World. We had a great time. You know, we saved up for the whole deal. And uh, that fall, we went to Chuck E. Cheese with my family. And we were walking out of Chuck E. Cheese. And Sam said, Chuck E. Cheese is the greatest place on earth. And I was like, well, like, you mean Disney's the greatest place, but you had a good time at Chuck E. Cheese. He says, no, Chuck E. Cheese is greater than Disney. Now, yeah, exactly. You, you, <laughs> you understand where I'm coming from. This is a problem, right? So, so I spent $80 at Chuck E. Cheese, second mortgage my house for Disney, right? So it, it, there, there's a disconnect. There's like, I don't think he understands exactly what he received. I need to make sure he understands what he's received, right? That's my job as, as a parent. And a lot of times there, there can be, you know, all kidding aside, there can be some hard feelings when you feel like someone doesn't really appreciate what they've been given, especially when you're the giver. Right, think about as a parent or a grandparent feeling like your kids don't really appreciate something that you did for them. Right, there can be hard feelings there or an employee that you don't really feel like appreciates uh, what you've done for them as their, as their boss or a friend who takes your generosity for granted. It can be frustrating and it's what our story is about today that Andrea just read for us. This is a story about a disconnect a disconnect with someone who doesn't really understand what they've been given. And the way you can tell they don't understand what they've been given is by how they move forward in, in their treatment of their fellow man. But I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit. If you have your Bibles, uh, that story is in Matthew 18. Uh, Matthew 18, and it starts out with a king who's going to settle his accounts, that over time, uh, people had borrowed stuff from this king, they'd taken loans from this king, and this was the king's responsibility. And the attitude at this point in the story is this, it's really simple to understand, you pay what you owe. You pay what you owe. You borrow it, you pay it, right? You, you pay what you owe. And we understand this. I, I just recently uh, changed internet and TV services uh, because I was tired of getting robbed every month uh, by my last one. And 
I knew that there was going to be a last bill from my previous company, and I understood there was gonna be a new bill from the new company, because this is how the world works. You pay what you owe. This is, kind of use a Bible term here, the, the Bible's term for this is justice. And there is a part of us that is really drawn to this mindset of, yeah, yeah, you know, we, we cheer this. You pay what you owe. You should pay what you owe. We, you know, we think about somebody like Harvey Weinstein, who was just indicted. And if he did even half the stuff that they accused him of, there's this part of us that, that cheers. Yeah, he, he should go to prison. You pay what you owe. Or whenever a big news story hits the community on a, a murder or a rape or even child abuse, there is this thing that rises up in us, throw away the key. If they did that, throw away uh, the key because our society is kind of built on this idea of you pay what you owe. And if you read this story carefully, you might have a question that if God is the king of the story and he, he is and Jesus is the king, then what does it look like for him to settle his accounts? I am so glad you asked that question. Such a great question for you to ask, right? Um, well, the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. That this is what we owe for the sins we have, uh, have committed. And in one way, we understand this because death was not part of God's original plan. Death was, we were supposed to live forever with him. Adam and Eve committed the first sin. And then ever since then, death has been a part of our world. So in a real physical sense, we get that. Yeah, sin entered in this kind of death era. But it even goes deeper than that. There's a more spiritual lesson found in here that we were created to have a relationship with God. I really believe that about you and about me. That God placed this desire in side of you to be in a relationship with him and our sin because God is holy and righteous our sin separates us from him our sin results in a death of a spiritual death of our relationship and I'll sometimes hear people saying their arrogance I had someone actually say this just the other day I just want God to treat me fairly you hear what's kind of underneath that if we could just have a spiritual system I just want to pay what I owe and I said uh I don't think you want that. According to the Bible, the wages of sin is death. And, and thankfully, the master of our story provides another way. The story goes on that this servant owed $100,000 and different translations translate what he owes uh, in, in different ways. But that's really not the point. The real point of it is he didn't have the money. Uh, so the standard operating procedure was that this guy, he owed whatever he owed. You see later in the story, it could be $10. If you can't pay what you owe, because that's the kind of paradigm at this point in the story, if you can't pay what you owe, you go to debtor's prison. Now, in the United States, we have outlawed debtor's prison, so we don't really understand this. You're not going to prison for your visa bill. Somebody say amen, right? You're not going to prison for your visa bill, all right? We've outlawed debtor's prison, but in this day and age, debtor, the most common reason somebody was in prison uh, was, it was it was debtor's prison, and there's a couple reasons for that. One is it just was a very common thing to have happen, but the other is for most other crimes, you were just killed, right? So for debtor's prison, you would go to prison, and the interesting thing about debtor's prison uh, was that uh, it, it, the way you were treated was uh, directly kind of decided by the person you owed money. This is how the system was set up. So you owed somebody money, they had you taken to debtor's prison, and then that person, if they were uh, kind of mean and harsh, they could go to the, to, to the prison and say, I want you at 10 a.m., I want you to beat them. 
every day at 10 a.m. I want you to beat them or I want you to deprive them of meals. It was completely determined by the person you owed the money to. If you were really uh, owed a kind-hearted person, they could actually arrange for you to be out of prison so that you could begin to earn, uh, the, the, earn money to pay them back. And it's obvious that the master and king in this story has a kind heart uh, because of what happens next. This guy's going to debtor's prison and here's what the text says. At this the servant fell on his knees before him. And why did, if you underline in your Bible, I want you to underline this. Be patient with me. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay everything back. This is really interesting to me at this point in the story. He doesn't ask for mercy. Did you notice that? He's going to receive mercy. He doesn't ask for mercy. He's asked for patience because he's still operating under this justice mindset when it comes to his salvation. He's operating under this mindset of, I will pay what I owe. Just give me more time. And I think a lot of Christians still operate, despite mercy and grace having come to us, a lot of Christians still operate with this mindset, this I will pay what I owe. Just give me time. I will volunteer in kids ministry till Jesus returns. I, I will give, I will attend as many services as, as, as required. We can't perceive grace. We can't perceive mercy. So a lot of us are walking around with a justice mindset. Just, I can't even fathom mercy for what I've done. God, just give me some patience. Just give me some time. I will pay back everything that I, I owe. And I find that it leads to two places in most Christians that operate under this mindset. It leads to two places. One is pride that we delude ourselves into believing that we can cover our own sins with church attendance and being nice to our neighbor and being a good person. And they underestimate the holiness and perfection of God and they overestimate their own righteousness. That's what happens when you do that, that you're underestimating, that if you think you can pay God back, you're underestimating his holiness and righteousness and you're probably overestimating your ability to do that. All right, so pride, the other thing it leads to is despair that a lot of people walk around with this crippling fear of the afterlife. Have I done enough? Have I served enough? Have I been faithful enough? Are God and I going to be okay? Have I done enough? And on question number one, have I done enough? The Bible's really clear on this. No, you haven't done enough. Um, you, you, you haven't. The Bible says that even our righteous deeds to God are like filthy rags. So question number one, have I done enough? No, you have not done enough. Question number two, are God and I okay? Yes, because Jesus has done enough. That's grace, that's mercy. It's not that I've done enough. Grace and mercy is Jesus has done enough. And this is the flow of the, ser of, of the story. The servant begs for patience. I'll pay everything back, I'll do whatever it takes. And the master, the God figure of the story, the Jesus figure, he offers mercy. He offers mercy. He offers something that this guy didn't even know was possible. Um, let, let me show you this in the story. It says, the servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. That's what's being offered, is the master absorbs the debt. I mean, somebody's going to pay the debt. So the master absorbs the debt. He took the debt. In a way, you could say he paid it. And do you see the good news in this story? I'm laying it on pretty thick, and so is the story, right? Do you see the good news in this story? That from the cross, for the cross of Jesus Christ, your debt is paid. 
From the cross, your debt is paid. From the cross, we receive freedom. From the cross, we receive life. I put together a few verses that I wanted to show you that kind of speak to this wonderful truth. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. I just quoted that earlier, but the gift of God, the gift of God, this is his mercy, is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ Jesus, you are not condemned. You you are not condemned. Romans 8, 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Martin Luther called this the great exchange. Uh, And I, I love this imagery, that the great exchange says that I give Jesus all of my sin, and he pays for it on the cross. And from the cross, Jesus gives me all of his righteousness. It is an amazing truth. So I give Jesus my sin. He gives me his, his righteousness. Uh, 2 Corinthians 8, 9. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. 1 Timothy 1.15, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. That's the Apostle Paul. Talk about that more later on. Uh, 1 John 4.10, this, uh, this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Let me put this on the screen for you. Justice says, I'll pay, what, I'll pay what I owe. Mercy says, I'll pay what you owe. Justice says, I will take care of my debt. I will pay what I owe. And it leads to pride or it leads to despair spiritually. Mercy is our savior saying, no, no, no. I, from the cross, I will pay what you owe. And I'll tell you, there's the number one way you can tell if this has found its way into your heart and into your mind is this. Does grace flow to other people in my life? Because if I truly, you you see this arc in the story, that if I truly understand and celebrate and am moved by what I just described to you, it is like a river, that it flows to me and that it flows through me and it flows to other people. Grace is like a river in that way. So now sometimes there's a log jam, right? Sometimes we have a little log jam, something happens and the the, the river stops flowing for a little bit and we we have to work that out. But the way grace is intended to work is it flows. It's like a river. It flows to me, it flows through me, and then it flows to other people. And there is a disconnect with the servant in this story. The servant goes out and he finds a guy that owes him $10. Remember, he has been forgiven $100,000. He goes and finds a guy that, that is $10, the friend doesn't have it, and look at what happens. He grabbed him and began to choke him and said, look, look at the terminology, and he said, pay back what you owe me. Pay back what you owe me. Grace has clearly not found its way into his heart. He immediately goes to his justice mindset. Pay what you owe. This is the way it works. We pay what we owe, we pay what we owe, we pay what we owe, except for the master has just said to this guy, I'll pay what you owe. I'll pay what you owe. I'll take care of of your debt. And word gets back to the master. And he says, listen, uh, you wicked servant. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? And like I said before, this is a story about a disconnect. 
This is a story about a disconnect. This guy's, there is a disconnect with this guy. He is not understanding the grace he has been shown. He's not understanding the mercy he has received. He's not understanding the kindness that has been expressed to him. And he goes out, finds a guy uh, that owes him uh, $10, and he absolutely blows up for it. The way we can tell if we really understand God's grace and God's mercy is our treatment of other people. And I want to tell you, I'm going to put it up on the screen for you. I think what's going on in this story, and this is just kind of my opinion, because the text admittedly does not come out and say this, but I think just reading between the lines, I think this is also a story of entitlement. That entitlement is the enemy of grace. Entitlement is an attitude that says, I deserve good things because I am a good person. And it is human nature to have a high view of my, my entitlements and a very low view of yours. So let me kind of use uh, an illustration of government entitlements. Let's say we're receiving the same entitlement. All right, uh, you, you and I are. Let's say uh, the government's paying for our cell phone. Government's not paying for my cell phone, but let's say the government is, right? And uh, I kind of, when, when I receive that entitlement of the government covering my cell phone, I, when I think about it for myself, I'll, I'll say, well, I need a phone, I pay my taxes, I'm a good citizen, I deserve this. I have a high view of the entitlements I receive. When I describe it for other people who are receiving the exact same entitlement, it, it will be something like they need to get a job and they need to pay for their own phone. I have a very low view of their entitlements. This is human nature. And I see this in the story. He doesn't appreciate the mercy of his heavenly father because he thinks he deserves it. He doesn't show mercy because obviously that servant doesn't deserve it. And part of the core of the gospel, and we have to get this in our heart and in our mind, heart and mind, <laughs> right? Is that we don't deserve grace. It's been freely given to us. We don't deserve it. It's been freely given to us. And you know why the argument, that what, what the argument is for why you don't deserve it? It, it? The argument is this. It's available to everyone. If you were receiving it because you were good, then this wouldn't also be true, that it's available to murderers, adulterers, and rapists. Right? It's not available to you because you're a good person. We have to understand this. It's not available to you because you're a good person. It's available to you because Jesus is a good person. And Jesus is a kind person. And Jesus is a graceful person. So here's the other thing in this story. And this is where, uh, as I was practicing this morning and writing this week, this is where I'm going to get a little bit of, of tension. And that's okay. I want you to hear me out then. Here's what I see in this story. If grace is like a river and grace flows to me first and then it flows through me and it flows to other people, grace is at its biggest and grace is at its widest when it flows to me. When it flows through me and it flows to other people, it is narrower and smaller. And here's what I mean by that. The grace I have received from Jesus is bigger than the grace I'm being asked to show. All right? So the grace I have received is bigger and better than the grace I'm being asked to show. You see this in the story. The first guy receives a, a, a gracious gift of $100,000. It flows through him. Then he's being asked to forgive 10 $10. So, so grace uh, that I have received uh, is bigger than the grace I'm being asked to show. Now, I'm guessing that statement might be met with a little bit of suspicion and maybe even anger because I don't know you and what's been done to you. 
right? And so you're thinking, you don't know what grace I'm being asked to show. You, you don't know what's been done to me. You don't know what I'm being asked to forgive. And that absolutely is true. So let me make a big kind of broad argument for a minute. And this is going to be a little bit cerebral. So just kind of stick with me. But I want to make an argument to you for why the grace that has been shown to me is bigger than and better than the grace I'm being asked to show others. There's three points because I'm really preaching today. All right. So they're not alliterated, so I failed there. But, all right, but I, just, I, I wanted to be clear versus alliteration. All right, Here's point number one. There is no one in my life that I have to forgive all of their sins. All right? There is nobody in my life that I have to forgive all of their sins. Now, I have to, and I'm being asked by my Savior to forgive all of their sins against me. So if somebody lies to me, if somebody hurts me, if somebody gossips about me, if somebody robs me, I have to forgive that. But that's not all of their sin, <laughs> right? That's all of their sin against me. That's not all of their sin against others. And I'm not being asked to forgive that. I'm being asked to forgive sin against me. And the same is true for me. Jesus forgives all of my sin, not just the sins I commit against you. So that's point number one. His grace is bigger and better because Jesus forgives all sin that separates us from God. All sin that separates us, Jesus forgives. There is nobody in my life I have to do that for. Nobody, all right? That's point number one. Point number two, and this should go without saying, but Jesus is more holy than we are. So sin is more of an affront to Jesus than it is to me. Now, don't mishear me. There have been times I have been devastated and angry by sins committed against me. But I honestly think that is like a tiny glimpse of, 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 of the holiness of God, that we even have that reaction. Because I don't always have that reaction. I don't know if you've ever had an experience like this, but I've had people come up to me and say, um, I need uh, to seek your forgiveness, I said, well, okay, what, what's, you know, I have no idea what they're talking about. What's going on? And they say, well, I said this or I did this, and now I feel bad. Will you forgive me? And I'll say, I'll forgive you, but then I'll usually say, that wasn't a big deal to me, right? That wasn't a big deal to me. Now, Jesus died for that sin, <laughs> but to me, it's not a big deal. You know why? Because Jesus is more holy than I am. And so my reaction to sin is, is not always the same uh, as his. So, um, so in that way, Jesus' Jesus's sacrifice is greater and bigger than I am, uh, the, the, than mine is. And the third argument is this, grace costs Jesus more than it costs me. Grace costs me the ability to continue to bring up your past sins. Grace costs me that. Grace costs me the ability to hang on to a wrong and stew over it. Grace cost me that. Grace cost me the ability to get others on my side and tell me that I'm right. Grace cost me very little. It does. And I've, I've had some stuff done to me, just like you have. Grace cost me very little. The grace for the whole world cost Jesus his life. And believe me, I don't say that to make you feel guilty. I really don't. You know what I do? You know why I'm saying all this? I want us to feel overwhelmed. I want us to feel overwhelmed by the bigness and the greatness of his grace. And I want us to understand that when his grace comes to us, it is at its widest point. It's at its biggest point when it flows to me. And then when it flows through me to other people, it's like a $10 debt. I want us to be overwhelmed by the grace of God so it can free flow to others. 
You know what the Apostle Paul said? I read the text to you earlier. Um, The Apostle Paul said one time, now think about this for a minute. The Apostle Paul who started a bunch of churches, who wrote a good chunk of the New Testament, right? Uh, Really holy guy, really big time grace guy. We'll talk about that more as as this story I want to tell you unfolds. Um, The Apostle Paul said one time that he was the chief of all sinners, right? Now that's a big deal on its own, but do you know what, what, what year Paul wrote that? that he was the chief of all sinners. Paul wrote that by most experts in AD 64, right? Um, Paul wrote that to a young man named Timothy. Uh, And that caught my eye this week as as I was studying because you know what else happened in AD 64? Um, in AD 64, there was the great fire of Rome. Rome nearly burned to the ground. And most people believe there was, an, there was a guy kind of in charge of Rome at the time. You've probably heard his name. His name was Nero. Uh, really, really sadistic, kind of evil guy. And most people believe that Nero set the fire in Rome so that he could have an excuse to blame the Christians for it and persecute them. And that is exactly what began to happen, is that the fire burned, uh, burned Rome to the ground, Nero burned the Christians, and he began to do things to Christians in persecution of them that I am uncomfortable articulating from the stage on a Sunday morning. It would make your stomach flip, it would make your heart heavy, it, 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 would, it would stick with you in, in your mind because it stuck with me in my mind. And, and that same year that Nero did this, the Apostle Paul wrote... I am the chief of all sinners. No, Paul. (laughs) You're not the chief of all sinners, Paul. You know who the chief of all sinners is, Paul? Nero. Paul, you are not the chief of, of, of all sinners. But Paul refused to compare himself to other people because Paul understood that when you compare yourself to other people, you're always gonna come out ahead and it's gonna diminish your view of grace. So Paul just refused to, to do that. Instead, he, 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 he looked at the gravity of his sin. He looked at the consequence of that sin, and he chose to be absolutely overwhelmed by the grace of his Lord and Savior. Grace that would forgive sin after sin after sin. Grace that would forgive his past. Grace that would forgive his present. Grace that would forgive his future. Grace that allowed him to be an apostle, even though he persecuted the church before. And I don't think I'm doing this this text justice, but that's really what I want for us this morning, is I want us to stop comparing, to stop doing that whole thing, I'm better than my neighbor, I'm better than this family member, and to stop doing the comparison thing and, and just agree with Paul, I am the chief of all sinners, and I am overwhelmed by the grace and kindness of my Lord and Savior expressed to me through the cross. And I think if we can get in a position where we are overwhelmed by his grace, that river will flow through us and it will flow right to other people. Now, there's an elephant in the room. I'm kind of done with that section of it. There's an elephant in the room and that's the end of the story. So let me reread that to you uh, where the master gets really upset about how uh, the servant has treated uh, his friend that owed him $10. It says, the master called the servant in. We have to address this. You wicked servant, he said, I canceled all the debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. That doesn't sound good. All right. Um, This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from, from the heart. It's like, huh. 
That's kind of scary, right? When, 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 you read that, when you read that text, and it's like, what exactly is going on here? And let me tell you what's not going on here. One is this is not a reversal of grace, right? You've got this whole story of grace, and then it comes to this at the end. This is not a reversal of grace to legalism, where all of a sudden Jesus is flipping the switch and saying, you have to do this to be saved. If you can't forgive the people in your life right now, then I'm going to hand you over to the jailers to be tortured like the guy in the parable. This is not a reversal of grace. Our God is a God of grace. Now, so what is it? Walk with me for two minutes here. Just stick with me for two minutes, and I think we can see what's happening here. I think in every parable, if I can give an overarching view of parables, in every parable, the point of the parable is Jesus is teaching us what life is going to be like in his kingdom. All right? So you got to read every parable that way. This is what the kingdom of God is like. This is what the kingdom of Christ is like. And in this Savior, in, in this story, we find a Savior in the story who is full of grace and mercy. That that grace flows to you, it's available to you, and that grace is available to your worst enemy. That grace flows to you, and that grace flows to them. So it just makes sense that our Savior in this story, who is full of grace, who is full of mercy, who is full of kindness, it just makes sense that his kingdom would be full of grace and mercy and kindness. That's the point of the parable, that in the kingdom of God, for anybody that wants to be a part of the kingdom, we treat each other with grace and mercy, that grace and mercy are required as you follow Jesus, that he commands us to live this way. He commands that we be overwhelmed by his grace, and then we show that grace to other people. This is what life is like in the kingdom. And then I'm going to put this question on the screen for you, because this is the question of the parable. Do you want to live in that kingdom? That's the question of this parable. Do you want to live in a kingdom whose overarching ethic and whose overarching law is grace and mercy, not just for you, but for others? Do you want to live in a kingdom whose overarching ethic is this, grace rules the day? Amen? Grace rules the day. So the end of this text, the scary part of this text, is not describing someone who says yes to that question, uh, I want to live in that kingdom, but they are struggling to forgive something done to them. I don't believe this text is talking about that person. I don't believe Jesus would say, hey, if you can't do this right now, you're out. I don't believe that's what this story is teaching because there is no harder thing you and I are asked to do. I really believe this. There is no harder thing you are asked to do than, forgive, than to forgive someone who's wronged you. I believe, and this is just my opinion, you can disagree and we're, we're still brothers and sisters. This is the hardest ask of our savior. I really believe that. That forgiveness and grace, grace is the hardest thing he asks us to do. So forgiveness takes time. Oh boy, oh boy, it takes lots of time. It takes prayer. It takes lots and lots of prayer. It takes the gospel, preaching the gospel to ourselves again and again and again. This isn't describing the person that says, I want to live in this kingdom, but I'm struggling with this person. Because if it were describing that, we'd all be in trouble. Because grace and forgiveness are hard. As you read the parable... Here's what I believe this is describing. It is describing someone who is unmoved by the grace of the king. It is describing someone who is unmoved by forgiveness. It is describing someone who is unmoved by Jesus. 
And it is, it is describing someone who does not want to live in a kingdom whose overarching ethic is grace. They don't want to live, they'd like to live in it for them, <laughs> but they don't want to live in it where, where, where others can receive that grace. They would rather hang on to their anger. They would rather hang on to their resentment. They would rather hang on to their bitterness than they would Jesus. They don't want to live in a kingdom of grace. They want to live in a kingdom of justice where everybody pays what they owe. And they have deluded themselves to thinking they can do that. And they've deluded themselves into believing that they have done that and that they get good because they are good and others get bad because they are bad. It is karma. It is not the gospel. And it is a lie that we receive good because God is good. We receive mercy because Jesus is merciful. We receive love because he is love. We don't receive good because we are good. We receive good because he is good. And so I believe that this, the last portion of this text is describing someone who says, I don't want to live in that kingdom. I'm fine to live in a kingdom where I get good because I've been good. I want to live in a justice kingdom. I don't want to live in a kingdom where grace and mercy are available to, to all sinners. I don't want to live in that kingdom. So there's a question involved with this parable that we have to answer. Do I want to live in a kingdom whose overarching ethic is grace? Because this is the kingdom of Jesus. And I don't know about you, but I do. I want to live in a kingdom of grace because I need it every day. And sometimes it is hard to show it to others. But you know what I need to do when it's hard to show to others? That is a, a, a kind of red light to me that I need to be overwhelmed by the grace I've received again. I need to take a chapter out, out of the book of Paul and say, I am the chief of all sinners. What about so-and-so? No, don't say that to me. I am the chief of all sinners and I have forgiven so much and I want to show that to other people. And so we're going to celebrate that right now. We're going to celebrate this kingdom of grace, and it's messy and it's hard, but we want to celebrate that we live in a kingdom with that ethic, that if you're here today, that you, grace is available to you. You may not like it right now that grace is available to others, but understand that grace is available to, to you. And I'm going to have the tech team put those gospel passages back up on the screen while we serve communion. And I just want to read through those passages uh, again and again and just ask God to help us be overwhelmed by his grace, to be overwhelmed by his mercy, to be overwhelmed by his kindness. Help us, God, to be overwhelmed. And so we're gonna serve communion here and celebrate this ethic of our kingdom, that grace and love is available to each and every one of us. And you'll find two cups stacked on top of each other. One has some bread representing Jesus' body. The other has some juice representing uh, his blood. And I just want you to celebrate grace. I want you to allow it, at its widest point to come to you and then to begin to think about how it can flow through you to other people. What is God asking you to forgive? What is God asking you to show mercy about? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his grace. Uh, we thank you for his mercy. And as I was walking yesterday, walking our dog, um, my prayer remains the same that we as a church would be overwhelmed by your grace and that we would wanna live in this kingdom of grace, a, a kingdom where grace is shown to us and grace is required of us, but we wanna live in a kingdom of grace. And it's hard and we struggle and we're not naturally forgiving as a people, but help us to be overwhelmed by your grace right now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.
I'm gonna come back up in just a minute and we'll receive communion together.